Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Last Palabra podcast, my weekly attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information in and out of my head for you all to listen to. Thanks for tuning in, clicking play, whatever it is you do with a podcast these days. Uh, This week, I want to talk about polite burglaries, automated gadgets gone wrong, and the issue of food waste. I want to kick off, though, by talking about a bit of a funk that I've been in the last couple of weeks. I guess Eddie Cochran would call it the summertime blues, or maybe the post-summertime blues would probably be more accurate. August has been and gone, and it was a truly, truly brilliant August for me. Uh, I spent it with my favorite people in the universe. Uh, My parents, my brother, my best friends, and of course, my now wife, as everyone was here for our wedding. And it was such a special occasion. But that's kind of it now. It's over. Summer's done for another year. Um, For the first 18 to 22 years of our lives, September kind of marks like an end to summer, some fun, some freedom, and a return to the routine and the oppression of school. Whilst many of us no longer follow the school calendar, I think that kind of the new beginning that September marks is still deeply ingrained in us, like hardwired into our brains, as it were. And in addition to this sort of internal clock that puts us on flight or fight mode ready for the return to the school system that we've not been part of well i've not been part of it for some 12 years the days start getting shorter and colder and rainier and like autumn is clearly on its way and i think this is even i don't know maybe more noticeable living in barcelona because during july and august the weather gets really really hot tourism surges in the city but a large part of the amount, like about the country, closes down. Businesses switch to this kind of uh, intensive, like eight a.m. to three p.m. kind of timetable, uh, which I was doing for work. And the rhythm of life in general just kind of adapts to the heat of the city. On a practical level, um, it's kind of good because the metros are less packed uh, when commuting, and it's far easier to find parking in the city. So, as I've returned now to like regular working hours, Patrick's gone back to school because she's still on the academic September to July timetable. Just she's a teacher. I guess she'll never kind of escape that. But I had this kind of like heavy, lethargic, sad feeling come over me. Like I just felt like I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything. I had this kind of like like this malaise, I guess we'd say. I don't I didn't feel ill, but I didn't really feel well. And like Patrick would be like, Are you okay? What's wrong? And it feels like ridiculous to say that I'm not okay because I was fine. But at the same time, like nothing felt okay. And, you know, when she kind of pushed further, it's just like, I don't know why. I just, I don't feel, I don't feel all right. I just want to be left alone in my kind of post-summer stupor. I hope I won't make it down sounding like too serious because it really wasn't. I'm fine. Um, people wrestle with far more drastic bouts of anxiety, stress or depression. Whereas I guess like for me, it was just, I want to binge on like, shit food and be left alone to do nothing in particular Uh, the focus of this podcast and like continuously working on the podcast instagram twitter facebook um it's really helped me uh, helped me focus my mind on something i I got kind of fed up with work as well with some long hours um fortunately as well the good people of social media have come up with with labels for such issues uh you'll find and do a google search it's enlightening uh the sunday scaries FOMO or fear of missing out 
And even errand paralysis are now things. Errand paralysis, I can't even say it. Errand paralysis is like this kind of feeling you get when it's like, ah, I need to go do something. I need to go do this. It's easy to do, like registering to vote or I don't know. Um, go book an appointment to the dentist. I don't know. Uh, and you just, oof, you can't be bothered. Like errand paralysis, errand paralysis apparently it's called. Um, I think it's like a millennial issue. Blame it on the millennials. In addition to the Sunday Scaries, FOMO and Erin Paralysis, uh, there's also what's been labelled the August Anxieties. Now, like I mentioned, Erin Paralysis. These things kind of seem ridiculous. Um, ways of just maybe like, I don't know, garnering attention on the internet, just complaining, talking about things. But one of the beautiful things that I do love about living in this hyper-connected 21st century world is that we can bring people together and share these experiences. What I've realized is that if you're going through something, be it good, bad, or, or indifferent, the odds are that in this world of like, what, over seven and a half billion people, there's going to be at least one other person feeling the same way. And thanks to the internet, we've got a better chance of finding that person and sharing the experience. Also, thanks to the internet, we have this language to talk about such things as FOMO or August anxieties to people to share this experience in like a coherent manner. Isn't it a marvellous time to be alive? <laughs> so as I discovered, the August anxieties or the September blues are actually a real, a very real thing. Describing this kind of, I don't want to say sadness. It's not a sadness, but this kind of low that maybe you get as you summer's ending and like non-summer life is, is coming back. People feel more resilient and able to cope when the sun is shining, said Nikki Lidbitter, uh, the chief executive of Anxiety UK, uh, speaking with the BBC. I managed to find some articles about this. Uh, even if we left school a long time ago, September feels like a time to be more serious and that can instill a sense of anxiety, she says. Some people feel that August is like a long Sunday. I've read this quite a few times. With the anxiety of like waking up tomorrow, the Monday of September. I think maybe I particularly felt this as I headed into kind of like two lots of three back-to-back -back weekends of work. Um, I don't know. I just had this kind of like... Ugh, uh, that probably describes the feeling best, actually. Ugh. It wasn't like I'm I'm ill or bad or anything. It was just, ugh. It's not all bad news, though. Um, as I've discovered researching on the internet, we can use this kind of like new school year Monday vibe to set ourselves up for a new start. Uh, set some objectives, organize yourself, do something new, maybe start a podcast. Um, but getting organized is kind of like a fast track of getting back into the routine. And I'm not going to lie, there was part of me that was kind of like pining for a bit of routine as well, maybe. Like, I needed to just get back to this kind of knowing where my life was after this period of excitement of getting married and seeing everyone. Um, Dr. Sherilyn Thompson, a counseling psychologist, again in this BBC article, said, after a period of relaxation, there's the stress of a new academic year or work or just getting busy, but also healthy routines and habits. And I think that's kind of key, is getting back to some kind of routine, laying down these healthy habits, um, clinical psychologist Dr. Camilla Rosen from the Mental Health Foundation says to use this period to plan meals, catch up with people now that they're back in, in their routine as well. When the days are shorter, it's important to make a clear routine about when we're going to get fit in exercise, get to the gym and see our friends, she says. Make sure we get everything in. And I think a bit of routine helps that. I'm not sure about, I don't know, sometimes the routine, routine itself can like seem daunting. Like, oh, I've got to go back to the routine, you know. 
Um, I'm certainly trying to focus on getting back to the gym regularly. I'm definitely throwing myself in 100% to this podcast. Like, it's occupying my mind week on week, uh, which is great. And just, I'm, I'm also, one of the other things I want to do is try and spend less time mindlessly scrolling through social media on my phone. And I say this often, far too often, and I very rarely chase up on it. I also criticize Patrick for it far too often. And I, I just, I want to try and leave my phone, stay away from my phone more and connect with people and doing stuff. Um, one of the things I've started doing on my commute to work is uh, when I'm on the metro or on the tram is I put my phone in my in my bag so that it's kind of not buzzing in my pocket or even in my hands and I make sure I read my books. Um, I, we've been out a couple of times lately as well for meals and I've left my phone at home, which is anxiety inducing in itself. Like it's horrifying. Uh, I take a camera with me because I like to take pictures, as many of you are probably aware. Um, but yeah, leave my phone at home and once you get over the anxiety of it, it's kind of liberating. Like, give it a try. I recommend it. Also, apparently trying something new helps. So taking up a new hobby or sport or learning a new skill. I really want to learn to draw. Or maybe I'll double down on photography. I don't know. Like, if you've seen my personal Instagram account, I've gotten kind of into street photography lately. Like, just hanging out, taking pictures of people and things around, playing around. I like playing around with kind of capturing the moving. Like, so I'll drop the shutter speed right down so you get that kind of blur. Um, because I kind of get this feeling like living in Barcelona, everyone's in a rush and I want to just kind of capture that bit. Just generally going for walks around Barcelona, taking maybe a longer way home or taking my time on the way home from work and trying to get just a few shots. There's plenty of, you know, stuff happening in Barcelona to take photos of. So, uh, on that note, actually, I picked myself up an old 1960s old, like a really, well, not really old, but old enough, uh, analog film camera. Like it takes rolls of 35 meter, millimeter film. Um, this is something I've toyed with it in the past and, uh, Patrick's sister recently got into analog photography and it was just like, ah, you know what? This is cool to actually hold the photos in your hand and, and to not know what's coming as well. Like it's, I don't know. There was something cool about it and she inspired me to, to go for it. So I found this secondhand, uh, camera on Wallapop, which is, is, if you don't know, it's like an app for buying and selling secondhand stuff. It's pretty popular here in Spain. Um, and I got this camera pretty cheap and it looks pretty cool. Like this real vintage retro look to it, like this black and silver kind of, it's cool. Um, I'll maybe share a picture of it. I bought some film from, from the same guy actually that I bought, bought the camera off, uh, cause it turns out that he's kind of part of like a, like a graphic design collective, I'd call it, or like a photography, like collective. I don't know. He's involved in this project thing. Um, and they've got like a lab for developing and scanning photos too. So once I've shot it all, I'll probably go back and see him and get him to develop my, my film. Of course, at around four euros per roll of film, four more euros to get it developed, a couple more euros to get it scanned, it starts to add up. It becomes an expensive hobby. Maybe you want to play around, you know, I'll, I'll be looking at other secondhand cameras as we go as well. Um, and especially because I'm so used to shooting like hundreds, if not thousands of photos uh, on my digital camera. And just choosing my favorites. So I'd have like, I don't know, 100 photos. Maybe I'll get one that I really like. Uh, I do like it, like limitations, though, in general, because I feel it forces me to be more creative. Um, like, I don't know, uh, podcasting, for example. Like, if I only got my voice to play with, it makes me be more creative. Putting the limits on taking pictures, you know, it's an expensive, what, four, four euros a roll of film, 36 shots. Uh, I'm no good at maths. But it, you know, it makes you conscious of like every time you press the shutter. Um, so you you have to be more like careful, but I think you also get more creative and you're pickier about what you point your camera at. Um, you know, typically I'd 
I don't know, I take hundreds of photos of my cats. I can't do that uh, with a roll of film. It'll be just too expensive. Um, also, thanks to dig shooting like digital photos for the past eight years or so, I've I've learned plenty about camera settings and setup. So it, hopefully it won't be a complete disaster. You know, I know about shutter speed and, and f-stops and, and all that kind of stuff now. So, uh, I, I mean, I've got some idea. I certainly wouldn't consider myself a pro or anything. But anyway, I'm kind of excited. But of course, I won't know until I've shot the whole roll of 36 photos, taken it, and it's been developed. Um, because, you know, that's the process, isn't it? You, you can't see the pictures right away. You have to wait. It turns out I'm not alone in this or, well, obviously my sister-in-law as well, but we're not alone in this because analog photography has been making a steady comeback for some years now with reports of film consumption and processing almost doubling since 2016 and dark rooms and processing labs popping up all over the US and the UK. And in fact, probably most people younger than me have never actually used an analog camera. Like I was thinking about this. Because we, we got a digital camera probably when I was around maybe 11. I'd have to ask my dad. He'd, he, I'm sure he'd know. It was, a if I remember right, it was like a real chunky, I can't remember the brand of it, but it was silver and it was like a really, I don't I imagine it was really low resolution, but it did the job. You know, you, you kind of, you got cool pictures that you could see right away. And so a lot of young people now in this period of instant gratification, uh, they don't know the patience needed to make sure you get the right picture, because that's something you, you want to take your time taking one of these pictures because you only get one chance at it. Then you have to wait to finish the roll of film. Then you have to take it to get developed, wait for it to be developed. Then you get the photos back. And hopefully, because you still don't know, they turn out the way you expected them to turn out some weeks ago, if you can even remember what you took the picture of. Like, the whole process is drawn out. Uh, but kind of cool. Like, there's a nostalgia to it. I like it. Um, I have vague memories of like being on holiday, taking photos, coming back with, you know, getting them processed and then a heavy envelope of, of photos to look through arriving either through the post or you have to go to Boots to pick them up. Remember that? Um, and like, hopefully you didn't throw out too many and some of you look at them and go, what, what, what on earth is that? Uh, or, or, you know, I can't believe that that looks like that. Or, you know, it never sees the light of day again. Because back then you had actual physical photos to hold in your hand. And, and you had to go out of your way to show people rather than just uploading them to Instagram. Like you had to go, hey, look, you know, do you want to see my holiday photos? And everyone had grown. And whereas now you can just skim past them on Facebook, you know. I'm not saying it was particularly better or worse or it's better or worse now. It's just different. And I, I like it. I'm going to retract what I just said. I like it, but I think it's, it's better now because having high quality photos right away is just awesome. Um, and being able to share them with the world and everything. But it... But there's certainly like a nostalgic thing that I, I really like about it. And also this kind of delayed gratification. Like you just have to wait. Waiting's nice. You get this kind of something to look forward to, you know. Um, one of the things I do dislike about digital photography is that many photos just never see the light of day. Like think about how many times you go somewhere and everyone, you know, it happens all the time now. You go to a birthday. The birthday cake comes out. Everyone's singing happy birthday, but they're all hidden behind their phones because they're taking a picture of you, you know. Um, so how many pictures, you know, people taking on their phones that you just never see? Like there's, there's photos of our wedding that other people are, are in these photos with their, their phones taking pictures of us. And we're like, ah, oh, that'd be cool to see that from that angle. And like, we just, we'll never see it, I guess. You know, I have to ask, where do these end up? Uh, I guess they, they either get deleted or they get lost in a, in like a digital stack of photos, um, underneath thousands and thousands of other photos. I'm as guilty as this for everyone else. I have 
probably in the last six months or so, maybe even more recently than that, we've got a new camera and I'm taking it everywhere and taking photos of everything. So every time I kind of transfer them to like a, my computer or my phone, I try and put them in an album. So I'm kind of organizing them and not well, I'm going to be honest, not well at all. Um, so I, I am as guilty as this, as everyone else. Uh, aside from like the odd photo that gets uploaded to Instagram, and that's naturally going to be the one that you look your best with the, you know, the true highlight of that event. And the rest will probably be never looked at again. They just, that's it for them, you know, and, and no one will ever see them. And I, I kind of think that's sad. I mean, that's the best option. You know, the, they could get deleted and really no one will ever see them. And like, I enjoyed growing up and looking at photos of my mum and dad when they were younger. You know, I, I want to have photos to look back on. And and I think I think we risk not having that. My brother and, and his girlfriend got, got us for the wedding, actually, uh, an instant camera. That was a really cool wedding gift. They spent the whole evening like shooting instant photos of everyone. I don't know how many hundred photos they gave us. Uh, but they, they took absolutely tons of pictures of everyone. And then the following day, they gave us like this album with all the photos in it and, and the camera. They gave us the camera as well, which is great. I love it because, you know, you have this tangible physical photo to hold in your hand. And not all of them turned out great. In general, these, it's a bit hit and miss. There's like, but there's no trying again, unless you want to use another uh, of the, like the Polaroid instant films, because they're not cheap, you know, and, and you just have to live with it. But at least you get a photo in your hand right there and then to show it to everyone and you can take it away with you. Admittedly, there's been a couple of occasions where it's been like, ah, it'd be nice to give you a copy of this. Oh, well, it's, it's mine, you know, <laughs> I'm taking it with me. But it's nice to have a, a memory of that kind of moment. And so Patrick and I have been trying to use it to take pictures to remind us of like specific moments in our life or that we want to remember or like gatherings of friends at a certain a certain event or certain moments in their life. Um, and so then we stick them in and we've been sticking them in an album and like writing a date and a caption to give it some context. And it's, it's just something that exists in the real world. You know, you can lay your hands on it. You can hold it. You can flick back through it and share it and show it to people. And the showing to people is a shared experience as well. Cause it's like, Hey, look at this cool picture that we took two years ago. And, and you know, you've got a bit of context cause we've written down what day it was and where we were. And like, they can go, Oh yeah, that's nice. You know, that's cool. You don't, you miss out on that. I think. Um, also it's, it's limited to those photos that you take and stick in it. Like there's no more to it. It looks like, so that's my rant rant over about having actual photos to hold. But it, it looks like photography is not the only thing that's making a digital, no, a digital return. No, an analog return. Um, like the digital, it's not a digital decline because digital is just continuing to grow. But there's this analog resurgence. I read in Rolling Stone last week, uh, they reported that vinyl records are set to outsell CDs for the first time since 1986. They say that the sales of vinyl records have enjoyed constant growth in recent years. I was unaware. At the same time, apparently, CD sales are in a nosedive. Like, that doesn't surprise me. When was the last time you bought a CD? I think, at best, I bought a CD for someone as a gift. And even that, I felt like, was kind of a pointless exercise. Like, it's like, it feels like more of a recommendation. Like, hey, I think you'll like this music. I could have sent you a link on Spotify, but I gave you a CD. I don't know. Maybe I should start sticking a photo inside the CD so it becomes a rounded, tangible thing you can hold in your hands. I don't know. But apparently, yeah, CD sales are declining massively to the extent that CD sales were declining three times as fast as vinyl sales were growing. The Record Industry Association of America's mid-year report, which came out last Thursday, 
says that vinyl sales accounted for more than a third of the revenue coming from physical releases, with vinyl revenue growing by 12.8% in the second half of 2018 and 12.9% in the first six months of 2019, whilst the revenue from CDs has barely budged. Apparently, if this trend holds, records will soon be generating more money than compact discs. Tom Corson, who is the co-chairman and CEO of Warner Records, told Rolling Stone, apparently, it's his words, it's a sexy, cool product. It represents an investment in music that's an emotional one. Now, I'm not sure about sexy and cool. Vinyl, yeah, vinyl's cool. Sexy. But for me, this like he's hit, he's hit on something here with it being an emotional investment in something. And I think that's the same with like my photos. Like it's far more, well, it's far more expensive, let's say in the long run. Like a digital, a nice digital camera and a memory card that's big enough is going to be far more expensive than uh, a, a second-hand analog camera and a bunch of um, rolls of film. But in the long run, if you keep buying film and different film, and then I could add up, you know? But it's an emotional investment. Like, I, f I feel like I have more of a connection to the pictures I'm taking, I guess. I don't know. The vinyl resurgence has been of a benefit, apparently, to, to some artists, especially classic rock groups. And uh, maybe we're not surprised by this. But apparently, the Beatles sold over 300,000 records last year, vinyl records. Whilst Pink Floyd, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix and Queen all sold over 100,000. Now, when I was probably between the age of 19 and 24, I bought a lot of CDs. I never really, really got into vinyl. I had some when I was maybe 13 or 14, but not many. But my brother had many more. I bought a lot of CDs. And I mean a lot. Like, I love the way that I could hold it in my hand. You have to open the case. It's got a cool picture on it. Cool cover art. You take the CD out. You put it in the CD of your... And you play it. Like, the whole process, for me, had, like, a romantic, nostalgic feel to it. And just having CDs stacked up everywhere. And that I could love, like, if you had friends around hanging out of an evening. And you could kind of, like, track the evening by the reverse order of the stack of CDs. Like, it was cool. Um... I try to cling to this by making playlists, like, as we go. So, that, I don't know, like, if people are around at my house or I'm in charge of music, uh, I'll, I'll try and make, rather than, like, just hitting play on, on stuff, I'll try and add it to a playlist so that it plays in, like, an order. And then you've kind of got this musical overview, like a snapshot of the occasion. I gave away a lot of my CDs before I came to Spain. I didn't really see the point in keeping them with, like, Spotify and stuff and moving them to Spain and... Like, I couldn't sell them for very much. So I just gave them away. I gave them away to family, friends. Um, and then the rest I donated to, to charity to sell. There's probably some still in the, the Oxfam music shop in Nottingham that are mine that never sold because I had some weird CDs. I do kind of miss having CDs, but I'm perfectly happy with Spotify, just having it anywhere and all the time on my phone, TV, laptop, whatever. One thing I do miss, though, about CDs is that you could play albums in full. Like, you didn't have to. But it's far more complicated to program a CD player to play, like, a certain sequence of tracks than it is to just, you know, now we just drop them into a playlist on Spotify. While I do love my playlist, I, I, I actually do try and still listen to albums in full from, from track one to track 15 or whatever. Especially if it's, like, a new release from an artist that I like. Apparently, those streaming... Uh, platforms such as Spotify are completely dominating the music industry now. I wasn't aware. I kind of thought like MP3 purchases were still a thing. I don't know. Uh, vinyl records accounted for just 4% of total revenues for the first half of 2019, 
whilst paid subscriptions to streaming services generated a huge 62% of music industry revenues. And it's just, I find it insane, like how we're handing over large sums of money. Like I'm trying to think like we pay, what, 15 euros between the two of us every month for the year. That's what, a couple of hundred euros a year f between us for, net, uh, for uh, Spotify. Like that adds up, you know, and like we're not owning anything. Like we only have access to this music once we continue to pay for it. The day that I cancel my Spotify subscription, I've got no access to music because I gave away my CDs. The same is true of Netflix and other films and series streaming platforms that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, you know, Disney Plus, HBO and all of that. We pay like month on month for the service, but the day we stop paying, we have nothing to show for it. I guess with Netflix, like, unless you're going to watch the same movie or series over and over again, like, I don't know, Friends. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've watched bloody Friends. I guess it doesn't really matter. Like, I, there's probably millions, if not billions of people over the world with shelves full of Blu-rays and DVDs that they've, they've watched once and they'll probably never watch again. Like, there's very few films and movies that I watch repeatedly. Music, though, that's, that is something that we repeatedly consume over and over and over, enjoying the same songs and albums time and time again. I wonder how, it, like, how many other things will be affected in such a way. Car sharing is a similar deal. Have you, have you seen this? Heard of this? There are cars parked all over cities that people pay to use by like the minute or the hour. There's some special way to access or open the, or start the car even like by a phone app or, or similar. And then you just, you just pay by the minute or the hour to use that vehicle. You don't worry about taxes or insurance or fuel. It's all covered. You don't even have to worry about maintaining or parking the car. You like, literally use it for the time you need it and pay for that time. And that's it. The only downside, of course, is that often you need to park a car where you found it. You've got to return it to the same place. So it's no good. Like, it's good for, like, back and forth trips, maybe to the shops. But it's no good for, like, a day trip out of the city. In Barcelona, though, I use a, a similar service called Yego, uh, which are actually mopeds. They're these, like, a little green electric mopeds. They kind of look like um, like Vespers, but kind of a bit more, I don't know, certainly more green. Uh, they're parked all over the city. You'll see them if you come and look look, look out for them. You open the mobile mobile app and you unlock the nearest bike to you. And in the top box is a helmet, which you can put on um, and away you go. And they charge about 20 cents per minute. So you can easily zip across the city from one end to the other for about 10, 12 euros, if, depending on the traffic. Of course, it's very rare that you actually need to cross the whole of Barcelona. And if you did, you probably just get the metro. But for short trips, if you're in a hurry, maybe there's two of you because there actually are two helmets in the top box. It can work out much cheaper and faster. Like, say you wanted to get from Sagrada Familia to Plaza de Catalunya. Take about 30 minutes on the metro. You'd have to change the metro as well, maybe get a bus. But you could probably do it in less than 10 minutes on an electric moped. Very cheap. And again, you don't have to worry, like, worry about maintenance, insurance, uh, charging it because it's electric. They deal with all of that. Uh, I don't know how they do it. I guess they have people that come and pick them up and charge them. Um, I do fancy quite, you know, buying a moped or a, a, a little motorbike if you're getting around. But, you know, Yego serves as a convenient and cheap enough alternative for getting about now. Modern technology <laughs> has come under fire this past week, though, as automation wasn't quite automatic enough. Last Thursday, Associated Press announced that a design flaw in Tesla's autopilot, uh, yeah, the Tesla's autopilot, the semi-autonomous driving system, and this was news to me as well, it's semi-autonomous, uh, and driver, so it was a combination of semi-autonomous driving system and driver inattention that caused a Model S electric car to slam into a fire truck parked on a California freeway. 
The National Transportation Safety Board determined that the driver was over-reliant on the system and that the autopilot's design let him disengage from driving. Now, whenever we talk about autopilot, I always imagine this inflatable doll from the 1980 Leslie Nielsen comedy Airplane. Apparently what happened on this particular occasion, um, and like we should take a moment to just, for the, for the beautiful Tesla Model S that was involved, the autopilot and the driver were both daydreaming, apparently, behind the wheel. Um, an SUV pulled out ahead and the car ran into the back of a fire engine, of all things. Like, how do you miss, whether you're a computer or an artificial intelligence system or a human, a freaking fire engine? The report says that Tesla's automatic emergency braking did not activate and there was no braking from the driver whose hands were not detected on the wheel. This is news to me as well. I didn't know that hands could be detected on the wheel by Tesla in the moments leading up to the crash. Now, apparently autopilot, which says to me that the car will be driving itself, is only semi-autonomous. And Tesla say that, and I quote, the semi-autonomous system is designed to assist drivers who must pay attention and be ready to intervene at all times. A statement from a driver in a nearby vehicle provided by uh, Tesla said the driver appeared to be looking down at a cell phone or other device before the crash. Now, I have to ask, one, if you have a truly self-driving car, which I thought I thought Tesla's were, apparently not, um, Tesla CEO Elon Musk hopes to launch a fully autonomous car next year. But if you were in a self-driving car, semi or 40, I don't know, why wouldn't you be doing something else? Like catching up on your emails or playing Candy Crush on your phone, like the car's driving itself. Honestly, though, up until this year, um, I mean, there was a Tesla that failed to brake as a lorry was t turning ahead of it. And the car and unfortunately, the driver who, who died in the incident ended up underneath the, the lorry. I thought that Teslas and self-driving cars were going to be a solution to all of our traffic problems. I was more concerned about like us non-automated car drivers in our Fred Flintstone manually driven cars and not the self-driving Teslas. Apparently, autopilot can steer a car in its lane, change lanes with driver permission, and keep a safe distance from vehicles ahead of it, as well as automatically braking to avoid a crash, except when there's a fire engine, apparently. It can't, however, completely drive on its own yet. So that's the big thing. You can see, though, just how easily you could lose your focus when the car's driving itself. I mean, like, a fucking lot of people lose attention when they're fully driving their own vehicle anyway. Um, let alone when the vehicles do most of it for them. Apparently, Tesla cars just don't keep an eye on the road, though. They're watching the driver, too. And I, I didn't know this. As I said, it knows when you're, you know, you're on the steering wheel, you're holding the steering wheel. In a, in a statement, Tesla said that autopilot repeatedly reminds drivers to remain attentive and prohibits the use of the system if they ignore the warnings. So the car's like, you must pay attention to the road. You must pay attention to the road. You must pay attention to the road. And if you don't, it punishes you by making you drive yourself manually, like the old school days. Uh, so they monitor when the driver's hands are on the wheel and, and warn them if they like they let go too often. The explanation that the National Transport Safety Board give, I think, is really disturbing. In my opinion, they said that a stationary vehicle in the Tesla's field of view is a challenge for the system to assess a threat and break. It says that the detection of stationary objects is challenging for all manufacturers of driver assist systems. I mean, damn. Like, next time you're driving, see how much stationary stuff there is. Like, self-driving cars need to detect this. Like, street lights, traffic lights, houses, buildings, other parked cars, people waiting to cross the road, just off the top of my head, you know? So, I'm kind of, like, 
I've been a fan of the Tesla cars and think they're really cool, but I'm kind of failing to see what their semi-autonomous autopilot actually does beyond the kind of gimmick of going like, hey, my car drives itself, but I have to be attentive all times. Like, it can more or less drive you to work, but you need to be basically driving at all times. Like, your hand's on the wheel, ready to brake or swerve. Like, especially on the lookout for stationary objects, obviously. I think I'd rather be in control for now. Like, I'd rather be more comfortable just knowing it's me in control of the vehicle rather than having to take control from from the Tesla. Something else to watch out for. Um, another thing to watch out for as we move into this age of automation and connectivity is your oven. An automated oven, I hear you say. Yes, the June oven is a smart oven because everything is smart these days, obviously. Um, you can control it from anywhere thanks to a handy mobile phone app. And in fact... You can even use your Amazon Alexa to talk to your oven. Hey, Alexa, turn on the oven. <laughs> they look amazing. Like, I'm not going to lie. I had a look on their website. Really cool. Exactly the kind of thing I've been imagining as I've been. I, I've got a slow cooker, right? And I use it a lot and I love it. But I've really been trying to time it as I go out and, and come back so that things don't overcook. Like, if I leave now and I go to work, I'll come back in eight hours. And it takes seven and a half hours to cook. Like, it takes half an hour to warm up. So if I plug it in now. I'll just about make it as long as I don't get delayed. Like, <laughs> Like, I thought about getting these things, like, uh, you can plug in. It's kind of a timer, but it's a, it's a smart timer, so it's connected to your phone. And is the the slow cooker, like, you could turn it to low or high or off. Those are the three options. I thought you could turn it to low, plug it into the timer so it wouldn't be on. And then when the time, like, the moment came, you could turn it on or off from your phone. And the food would be in there, cooking or not cooking, depending on if it's on or off. That's my solution. But I've now been showing these June smart ovens. Um, in fact, this oven is sm so smart... Um, that it'll detect the food, what the food is that you've put in and figure out how best to cook it all by itself. Like that's more autonomy than the Tesla Model S, surely. The June oven even has camera connection to your phone so you could watch and even live stream on Facebook your food cooking. Yes, this is real life. For $700, you can get yourself a June smart oven. The only downside is that it may turn on during the night and heat up to 200 degrees Celsius. The oven's owner's can't explain what happened, but June insists it's a user error. Now, there have been a few reports. Uh, the first one was on Verge, which is where I first came across the June smart oven. It reports one of these owners' ovens turned on around 2.30 a.m. onto, like, grill mode, 400 degrees Fahrenheit or 200 degrees centigrade, for hours while he slept. And he only noticed when he woke up four hours later. He says his wife baked a pie around 11.30 p.m., as you do, uh, on the night of the preheating incident, and she turned the oven off. Once she took the pie out, he was sure of it. Absolutely certain. Two other owners have posted on a like an owner, June owner's Facebook group about similar remote preheating incidents. The first documented preheating incident has been has been narrowed down to May this year, where a user reported that he roasted potatoes about 5 p.m. one night, turned them off and left them to cool in the oven, apparently forgetting to take them out. Now, the next morning he woke to find that the oven had turned itself on at 1.20 a.m., and baked at 218 degrees Celsius for 4 hours and 32 minutes. With the potatoes in the oven. Which were now burned to a crisp. And a third owner wrote in late July that her phone woke her up at 6.30am with a push notification. Because the June smart oven not only allows you to connect with your Alexa and with your phone. And give you a live screen via Facebook. But it also gives you push notifications. Saying that the oven had preheated to 200 degrees Celsius and was ready to cook. Now their CEO Matt Von Horn says the owner's not the oven to blame. He says, we've seen few cases where customers have accidentally activated their oven 
to preheat via their device. Whilst it's great having your oven connected to your phone, you also have the risk of accidentally switching it on. Good one, Matt. We've all accidentally called people or mashed a random combination of commands into our phones from our pockets. But imagine pocket dialing your oven to preheat when you're on a night out. Now, apparently June plan on updating the device so it not only recognises the food that is in the oven, but it'll also recognise if there's no food in the oven and hopefully avoid such situations. These are really modern problems that we're facing here. These are proper 2019 issues, aren't we? My self-driving cars crashed on the way home, whereas planning to get dinner out of the self-cooking oven. What will they automate next? Now, another phenomenon of 2019 seems to be the polite burglary. Twice this week, I saw articles about burglars that despite breaking and entering, were determined not to be rude. The first case was in Florida because where else? The home's occupant told investigators he woke to discover a man cooking and eating sometime after 4am Tuesday morning. Apparently the intruder had told the previously sleepy man to go back to bed. I mean, imagine waking up on a 4am on a Tuesday morning to find someone cooking himself a, a early breakfast snack and just be like sorry go back to bed it's fine <laughs> the, uh, the intruder ended up fleeing as the resident called the police uh perhaps he hadn't made enough for both of them i don't know police caught the hungry intruder and unsurprisingly said that he was under the influence of alcohol a slightly more high profile case last friday as police responded to a call from none other than the home of well the beach mansion of taylor swift uh, at rhode island Apparently, police found a 26-year-old man inside not wearing any shoes. When asked why he wasn't wearing any shoes, he said he was always taught to take his shoes off when entering someone's home to be polite. Most people being polite would probably knock and wait to be welcomed in, but each to their own. And after I said last week that I was determined to go meat-free for at least a couple of days per week in order to do my bit for the environment, I want to draw attention to another issue. I have been doing it, by the way. Um, today I had pasta with pesto and hummus. Um... What else have I done? I had some bean burgers. Yeah, I've been on it. I've been working on it, I promise. Uh, I want to raise a bit of attention to another issue. And this one I'm certainly guilty of as well. Apparently, in the United States alone, there is as much as $218 billion of uneaten food wasted each year along the entire supply chain. So that's to say, like, from field to plate or bin, as it were. Apparently, globally, the carbon emitted by waste food could be classified as its own country. And if it were, it would be the third worst carbon emitter in the world behind the US and China. Now, people buy food, I do this, stick it in the fridge, planning on cooking it and eating it. But the reality doesn't often live up to the, the good intentions. I do it, I'll buy something. Typically when I'm in like a, a healthy mood, it's like, right, let's go and buy loads of healthy food. Stock up the fridge. I'm going to be healthy this week. And like, I put it in the fridge thinking, I'll eat that tomorrow. But as we learn from James Bond, tomorrow never comes. Before you know it, whatever it was has gone bad. There's nothing for it but the bin, a waste of money, and a waste of what was once good food. Generally a feeling of guilt, I guess. It's not just stuff going bad, though, that, you know, before we've had a chance to eat it, apparently. A professor at Ohio State University recently published a paper suggesting people throw out perfectly good food because of the expiration date on the packet. This isn't the first time I'm hearing this. The problem with that, often those labels... They're not, there's not like a standard. They're unclear, they're misleading, and sometimes they're even wrong, which just means perfectly good food goes in the bin. Now, the additional problem of food that's expired, according to the label, is that people feel less guilty about it. It's like, oh, well, the label says it's out of date. I got to throw it. That's what it is. Whereas if you actually see kind of a tomato rotting in the fridge, you feel kind of sad for it. I don't know. For the study, Professor Rowe 
asked participants to list and send a picture of what was in their fridge. And then a week later, they followed up to find out what was eaten, what wasn't, and what had gone bad. It turned out that people weren't eating foods because the best before label dates coming and going, believing that the food had gone bad because it had officially expired, if you like, by the date on the packet. Sadly, though, according to Roe, most of that food was probably still okay. He says that actually, while a lot of foods, like, they get, you know, the kind of declining quality maybe a little bit over time, very few actually expire to the point of becoming dangerous, with the exceptions of maybe, like, meat and, he says, soft cheese as well. Apparently, if it smells obviously bad or it's mouldy or not good, throw it. But unless it's got these obvious signs, it's very unlikely to have a serious effect other than just tasting it funky maybe and you just go, oh, that's gone bad he says not many of us know where the line between quality and safety is it's kind of like if i don't enjoy it or will i die like these are the kind of you know will it taste all right or will it cause death and in fact a lot of foods have a sell by label as well which it just means the shops need to be sending customers away with that food rather than just throwing it out completely like that's sell by people can take that away sell by date's gone but that's fine you're not selling it eat it until it goes bad Bro's research found that these vague date-only labels just trigger people to not even finish food, just at a very high rate. He says that better labels and better education for us consumers, so, you know, it's not our fault and as such, we're just doing what we're told by the, the food industry and the people that write these labels. Better education for us, so we know when stuff's getting bad or, or worse, taste and quality-wise, rather than the stuff that's going to be dangerous for us. He suggests that if a food company can stand by the quality of its product for just another day or two, meaning that best if used by label had a few more days on it, it could decrease intent to toss an item, it's a, you know, your desire to throw an item, by as much as 20 to 30%, which would have a few, like a just enormous impact on food waste and the environment, and of course your pocket. You know, at the end of the day, all this food you're throwing out, you've bought already. So what should we be doing if we're going to cut down on food waste? save money and, and the planet in the process. Professor Rowe says, and I like this, he says, use your nose, take a nibble and give it a second chance before you toss it automatically. And so that's it. The big exceptions, he says, meat, fresh meat, deli meat and cream cheese, like soft cheeses. Don't know what the deal with that is, but apparently, you know, if they go bad, they can be dangerous. So there you go. Next time you think something's going off, give it a taste, give it a sniff, it's a bit tangy, throw it out. If it's all right, why not? Ignore that date. I'm coming up to my second of three weekends of motorbike racing work in a row. Next week, as we head to Mizano for Moto with MotoGP for the San Marino GP. Uh, in the meantime, you could catch my voice on World Superbikes on ITV4 this week. I'm on Tuesday, and then it's repeated Saturday morning, I think. That's uh, if you're in the UK, of course. I did a one-off with them last weekend and quite enjoyed it. Um, I didn't know a lot about World Superbikes, not going to lie, Um but I was able to figure it out. Um, there was some thrilling motorbike racing as well. It was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and novelty is always fun, you know. It's something a bit different to do. Um, the highlights from the San Marino GP, it'll be on Quest, which is like a free view sports channel, I believe. I think that's a week on Monday, so it's like after the race weekend. And so there's plenty of chances to, to hear my voice on this occasion, you know. Um, what else? The Rugby World Cup kicks off in Japan a week on Friday. Ireland go into that ranked number one in the world because they beat Wales 19-10 last weekend. And my friend and reliable amateur rugby analyst Matt tells me that we're going to be in for a damp start to the uh, the Japan 2019 Rugby Union World Cup. Uh, because after the opening ceremony, which it's in Japan, let's be honest, it's going to be awesome. 
host nation Japan will take on Russia, who haven't been on a good run lately, to say the least. Last weekend, they were beaten by Connacht, which was like an Irish club. And before that, they were beaten 22 to 35 in Moscow at home uh, by championship side Jersey Reds. Like, it just looked like Russia's campaign is going to be very short-lived. Interesting story that I heard ahead of the, the Rugby World Cup is that they're a bit worried that a lot of these teams, especially like the, um, I don't know, the Fiji teams and the, well, a lot of the players really have got tattoos. And apparently in Japan, tattoos typically suggest kind of like a relation to the Yakuza. So there's this, there's been this concern that all these these rugby players, which are going to stand out anyway in Japan, let's be honest, because a lot of rugby players are massive, um, are going to be like, because of their tattoos, people are going to assume that with uh, the Yakuza. It's a cultural issue, but uh, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be fine. Anyway, uh, I've got nothing more to say about Japanese, uh, Japan, the Yakuza and rugby players' tattoos. Uh, that's all for this week. It's probably best that I wrap it up there. I'm rambling, I think. Um, let me know what you thought of my rambles. It's it's always great to hear from people, whether it's feedback, ideas, suggestions, questions. You can reach out via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you very much for listening to episode three of the Last Collabora podcast. <laughs>